Hello, welcome to Unlocking Landscapes, a podcast about people and places. I'm your host, Daniel Greenwood. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Chantelle Lindsay and Sam Bentley Toon. Chantelle and Sam are environmental professionals who work together on London Wildlife Trust's Great Northwood project. Just to clarify that any views shared are their own and are not those of the organisations they have worked for. For more information about London's Great North Wood, check out the first episode of the podcast where Chris Schuler talks about his upcoming book, The Wood That Built London. In this episode, Chantelle and Sam share their experiences of protecting and managing South London's ancient woodlands. They talk about their passion for volunteering, wildlife and some of the challenges that woodland conservation in London involves. We also discuss rewilding in a London context and whether beavers could return to London's rivers. Since recording this podcast, Sam has moved on to work on London's rivers and Chantelle has become a minor celebrity with her brilliant appearances on Blue Peter and a great Northwood-focused segment on BBC Spring Watch. Well done, Chantelle. Great work. You too, Sam. People like Sam and Chantelle are lesser known in the conservation world but they're having big impacts at a community level. Of course, you can say the same for many people the world over, and it's just such a pleasure to be able to feature people like Chantelle and Sam on this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Chantelle and Sam. Welcome to Unlocking Landscapes. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's go in alphabetical order. Chantelle, how are you? What have you been up to? I'm good, thank you. Um, This week I've actually been off work, so it's been a nice sort of, I want to say relaxed, although I've been quite busy just teaming off my to-do list. Um, But yeah, I've been working at London Wildlife Trust. And then other than that, I have got a newfound um, enthusiasm for roller skating. So I've been trying to do that. And at the moment, I just seem to be tidying my room a lot. I don't know if that's because I'm at home a lot. So, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Very exciting things. Where do you do your roller skating? In, in your house? <laughs> I wish. Um, I live near Kenley Aerodrome, um, so which is sort of on the outskirts. It is in Croydon. It's on the outskirts sort of like in the boundary of Surrey as well um so of course there's like a landing strip it's like the Ministry of Defence uh place quite serious when the gates are open you can go in and so I've been like going up and down the little strip that is very cool um so that's that's right next to Kenley Common isn't it yes yeah, yeah. I went for a walk day the other day and I feel like every time I go I discover something new um and actually Sam's been down here and I was like trying to show him where I went before and I, c- I can never find where I went before so Guaranteed, I won't be able to find where I went, but it was a really, really nice. Yeah, there's a great walk. When I used to live in London, I'd walk from Coulsdon South Railway Station through um, Farthing Downs and Happy Valley, and you can end up at Kenny Com and then go to White Leaf. Yeah. Um, that's so, so nice around there. Really nice. Yeah, I went to Happy Valley on, it was last Saturday as well. It was really, really nice. And that's just been designated as a national nature reserve, all that, hasn't it? Yes, which is a really big area, so it's really great. Excellent. And Sam, how are you? What have you been up to? I'm good, thanks. Um, I started a new job about three weeks ago. 
Um, so I used to work with Chantal on the Great Northwood Project for London Wildlife Trust. Um, but sadly, I left there and, um, but, you know, happily have a new job with Thames 21. Um, so I've been, yeah, that's kind of been my main focus um, for the last three weeks, getting to grips with starting a new project. And have you been doing any roller skating on airfields or? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, I've been taking regular trips to the local parks, which has been nice. Yeah, exploring the local green spaces as much as I can. But I've spent a, a huge part of the last three weeks on Zoom talking to people about rivers, yeah. And now you're here talking about woods. So you both worked together on the on London Wildlife Trust's Great North Wood Project. And I really want to hear about um, your your personal experiences of, you know, how you came to be in those roles, um, which are, you know, quite unusual, really. I mean, I think when I'm in primary school, I mean, I, when I was asked in primary school, what did I want to be when I grew up? I said, policeman. <laughs> could not be further than a policeman, to be quite honest, um, as most policemen would probably admit and police and women sorry police women as well um but yeah i mean it, you, you probably don't get too many young people saying i want to be a, a woodland conservationist in south london or um something like that so it, yeah it'd be really interesting to hear hear about that so um in alphabetical order Chantel, how did you get into um into your work when i get this question i'm like how far back do i go do i give my whole life story um i'll give little snippets go for it <laughs> um, so I've always um, been in love with the natural world I, I can never remember what started it but I've just always kind of um, got this feeling of just awe of like how things have come to be um, and just learning throughout like, my academic career just like, learning about adaptations that animals have and how we fit into this world it's just like amazes me um, even to this day so I've always had that kind of natural curiosity um, and been really lucky that my mum and my sisters have been really um, nurturing about that, even though like, most of the time I've been like the oddball, the strange one in the family who just goes and touches people's pets and things. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I kind of like followed it myself because I think in school there's not really, um, you know, you're not really told that it's an option. It's kind of like, what is wildlife conservation? Um, and you just see it on documentary. So it was kind of like a lot of like following my nose and my own sort of research. Um, but I managed to get to university um, after a, a bit of a hard time in sixth form. Absolutely hated sixth form. And um, I didn't think I was going to make it to university, but um, I did. And I studied animal behaviour and wildlife conservation uh, at the University of Wolverhampton, um, which was absolutely amazing because I just remember sitting in a lecture and thinking, why is everyone not learning this? Like, this is incredible. And, and doing like an essay on, I don't know, like, I think one of our modules was called The Life of Mammals. And I was like, this is just great. <laughs> Based on a David Attenborough documentary, how it doesn't get any better than this. Um, so yeah, I just always had that. And then I came out of university, ready for a job and waiting. And I think that's, you know, you think you're just going to get it handed to you, but it didn't, unfortunately. So I um, went off to Spain for a bit to teach English, um, which was amazing. And then when I came back, I was like, I'm determined to get into a job in conservation. That didn't happen again. Um, I kept getting loads of like rejection letters saying, you haven't got enough experience. Um, so I took a pensions call centre job, um, which I learned a lot at, but I didn't enjoy. So after about a year of that, I then was like, no, come on. I really want to get into it. And that's when I saw the um, Keep It Wild project. 
um, which is a London Wildlife Trust project, which is um, aimed at 11 to 25 year olds. And it has five different strands. And one of the strands is a paid traineeship for 16 to 25 year olds. Um, and it was like, when I first saw it, I was like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. It had like prerequisites for people from underrepresented backgrounds in the sector, um, from um, socioeconomically deprived areas. Um, and like I said, it was paid as well. And at London Wildlife Trust. So I was like, I need this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I remember, yeah, I uh, started off volunteering for the youth forum, then moved on to the traineeship. Um, and I was based with the Great Northwood Project uh, with Sam and Edwin Mallins, who's now reserves manager. Um, and I learned so much in that three months. It's ridiculous. Um, and then as it was coming to an end, Edwin um, got the reserves manager position. Um, and I never thought that I would go for the Great Northwood Project. I was kind of like, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to have experience. But Sam and Edwin and like loads of people at the trust and my family were like, go for it, go for it. You can do it. Um, and lo and behold, I got the job, which was like a pinch me moment. And I remember our manager, um, Andrew, kind of just like told me in a really calm manner in the office at uh, Centre Wildlife Gardening. I remember just literally wanting to like jump up and down and scream and do all that sort of stuff. But Andrew was just so chilled. I was like, oh, I got the job. Yeah, okay great <laughs> and then when I went home I like screamed around the house <laughs> um I've, when I got my first job in conservation it was like a rave but I was the only person it was like me me and my parents I had to go and sit down to dinner with my parents but yeah I know the feeling it's sort of ecstatic isn't it well you taught English in Spain that's pretty cool did you see any nice wildlife out there um Yes, actually. Um, <laughs> a lot of birds. To be honest, I was kind of like, I feel like I missed um, an opportunity there because I wasn't that into bird watching back then. So I would kind of just be like, oh, a bird. Cool. Um, so I didn't actually know a lot of the names, but there were some amazing birds out there. Yeah, there's lots of English people go go birding there, don't they? Um, but yeah, I just wanted, before we come to Sam, I just wanted to say Keeping It Wild is such an amazing project um and it's really great to see that it's um you know it's made making a difference in people's lives but also bringing um awesome people into organizations like london wildlife trust so um yeah if anyone else is listening and, and has some money to make a a similar project do it yeah. you know it's, it's been such a great project it seems yeah i think every environmental organization should have something like it to be honest yeah agreed and hopefully that will become the, the norm mm-hmm. And so, Sam, how did you get into um, your area of work then? What is your area of work? Well, I think similarly to Chantal, I've always just had a sense of wonder um, in relation to the natural world. Um, I think a formative TV programme for me was um, one that came out in the 90s, a David Attenborough programme called The Private Life of Plants. Um, I remember watching that as a sort of, I must have been about six, and just being completely captivated by it and my parents bought me this sort of accompanying book and I'd spend hours looking at that. Um, I think another key moment, I remember being in primary school and someone coming to talk about rainforests and sort of the destruction of rainforests. And I think I remember really strongly being um, from that moment sort of deciding that I would work in conservation. Um, I went through various other ideas as well. I wanted to be a novelist or a painter and stuff, but um, but that kind of that was the one that kind of that, that continued. Um, 
So I think thinking about that, I always think about that in relation to to um, environmental education for for school children. Um, and me and Chantal have led lots of sessions with school children, and like hopefully maybe one or two of those people will <laughs> will go on and become conservationists. Um, so I went on to study biology at university, um, and then also like Chantal came out of it and didn't get a job. Um, I worked on bars for years and did lots of internships and volunteering um, and sort of zero hours contracts and lots of very short term contracts um, before finally getting a sort of uh, my first kind of decent job in conservation, which was the Great Northwood Project. Um, and that was a fantastic project to to kind of, I guess, cut my teeth on in that um, it was hugely buried. We got to do all kinds of different stuff like practical conservation as well as education. And um, we were working in the Great Northwood, which is a really exciting and historically rich place. Um, and we had people like Daniel Greenwood to be our mentors. <laughs> Not Chantelle, that was before, before her time, but yeah, Daniel Greenwood, you were the, um, the Sydenham Hillwood manager sorry if you don't want me to say, say this but i can say this anyway um and you yeah it was you were a very inspiring person to um i learned a lot from you in that role yeah he's going to be on the show next week <laughs> no thanks that's very kind of you to say um I, I wanted to i wanted to ask you two things first i think it's probably helpful if we just say because we've already um recorded a podcast specifically about the great northwood with chris shuler and his book that's coming out in the autumn of 2021 but um would would you just tell us what the Great North Wood is? So it's it was a a large wooded landscape, um, and was a key area of land for the sort of economic development of London. It was um, a key source of fuel and timber and oak bark, which was used in the leather tanning industry. Um, so it kind of sat um, on the the kind of a ridge of land that extends down from Deptford in the north down to Selhurst in the south and was a mixture of wooded commons and, and coppice woodland, uh, which were, man were managed for centuries um, to produce those, those products. Um, and then it sort of started to decline during the Industrial Revolution um, and with the Enclosure Act, and it meant that those traditional um, industries sort of declined and then collapsed um, and lots of the woods were lost, but we have um, a few fragments um, remaining of a mixture of kind of ancient and recent woodland um, that together form the sort of modern day incarnation of the Great Northwood. Thanks, Sam. And Chantel, you're from Croydon, right? And I'm just wondering, because um, I, I grew up in um, on the border of like Forest Hill and Peckham Rye and stuff, and I didn't know I never knew about the Great North Wood and, you know, you being in Croydon, you're on, you're on the kind of southern boundary of what is the historic Great North Wood. Did you know about no, it? No, I didn't actually. I was actually born in Doncaster up north. Um, I've been a bit of a, like a, a move around nomad and then moved to Peterborough. So I think I came to, I came to London in 2000, around 2003. Um, but even then, I think, you know, um, I guess starting off in London as kind of preteen, even then I didn't know about the Great Northwood um, landscape. It's only literally until I did the traineeship. I remember, you know, it being one of the options on the, the form for where you want to be based. And I was like, oh, let me research this Great Northwood project. And I was just like, wow, this is insane. I had no idea. Um, 
that you're so close to such a kind of like legendary <laughs> landscape. Um, so no, I didn't know anything about it. No, it's just it's just such a it seems to capture people's imagination. Um, we, I mean, obviously it did massively because the uh, National Lottery Heritage Fund invested quite a lot of money in it, and um, you know organisations like London Wildlife Trust have been investing in it for a long time. Um, but so, what exactly is your your work with the with the Great Northwood Project? I mean, what what does um, woodland conservation mean in London? Chantelle, do you want to go? The sort of the Great Northwood Project is sort of in sort of two I guess tiers. Um, so one part of it is um, practical conservation, and the other part is community engagement. So practical conservation um, is mainly a volunteer program. Um, so we have thirteen key sites that. Um, were factored into the project at the start uh, when it was developed. Um, there's, there was quite a few that were kind of um, in consideration, but the 13 key sites that we've chosen um, are across five boroughs um, in South London. So we run volunteering, and usually pre-COVID it would have been Tuesdays, Fridays, um, and every other Saturday. Um, and we have a lot of really dedicated volunteers who are just amazing. And I think being a volunteer manager... Um, has been I think one of the best experiences because I think you know going into the coming into the sector you make a lot of assumptions about who's in the sector and um, about the volunteer groups and I think something that did put me off when I was younger with volunteering was always trying to find like um, volunteering groups that were quite young and people that looked like me and it was always kind of a little bit of a struggle um, so being a volunteer manager and just seeing um I guess that you can get along with people that you didn't, you know, that you don't really like see yourself in. Um, and just seeing the variety of people, I think that's just been absolutely amazing, seeing how dedicated people are um, to their space. So that's, that's been an amazing part of it. And volunteering is really important. We can get half the stuff we do done. Um, so that involves like tree planting. Um, it involves getting rid of or removing, I should be more scientific removing um invasive plant species we do a lot of cherry laurel work which you probably know a lot about daniel um also doing surveys and training volunteers um so it's quite varied work and it obviously depends on the season um which is something that i've also learned that volunteering looks completely different in the winter than it does to it does in the summer because we've got bird breeding seasons and things like that to consider um, and then the other side of it is the community engagement, which is basically just telling anyone and everyone who will listen about the Great Northwood um, landscape. And that involves um, school sessions, um, primary school mainly. That involves targeted outreach. So we've worked with NCS The Challenge, um, which is always really amazing because you get to work with young people and you get to um, almost like change their perceptions and see how they go from maybe like in the morning being a bit like, what is this? To like in the afternoon you can't like stop them from working um so that's really amazing and I think one of my favorite parts of this job um and then as the project's meant to be coming to an end this year there's been a lot of um, emphasis on legacy work so what will happen after the project's finished and sort of like handing over um, handing back to councils and handing back to friends of groups and community groups um, and just empowering them so that they can continue the good work hopefully just while we're on that subject of volunteers, I just wanted to ask you about the impact that conservation volunteering has on particularly the mental health of volunteers from what you've seen. I mean, 
I mean, I, I think that's quite an important thing. I mean, what, what have you seen? Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, from personal experience, just, you know, you see, you hear all this research about being outside, being amazing for mental health, but when you actually kind of work in it, you experience it. Like I've had days where I just can't be bothered to get up, whatever, then you're out in the woods and it's like, I love this. <laughs> Why was not here earlier? So it's like that immediate turnaround. Um, and I think definitely since COVID, it's been really apparent how important volunteering is for people. Because we've had like, you know, in the beginning, it was like emails asking when we're going to restart. And, um, you know, everyone sort of ends their messages with like, hope to see you soon. Hope we start re- restart volunteering soon. So I think it definitely has a major impact on people's mental health. Um, and we've had some really good feedback from like our um, evaluations that we get done on the project. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final one as well. Um, and just the sort of testimonies in there about people, you know, meeting friends and um, yeah, becoming really important part of people's lives. I think it's really, really important for social and physical and all of that. Yeah, um, Sam did mention that I used to work in, in the Great Outfield as well. And I totally know what you mean, um, Chantel, about, you know, you're really tired and you don't, you don't want to get up. And then you're in the woods and you're like, yeah, this is this is living, isn't it? I've made it. <laughs> yeah, I really miss that, to be honest. I really, I mean, because, yeah, whenever I whenever I go to the woods, it's just like, this is this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, <laughs> but obviously not supposed to be most of the time. Um, but Sam, I wanted to ask you because you had a really important role in developing um, this project, and you you will have seen a lot. You've spoken to so many different people about this in the early stages. You know, when it wasn't established, what was it like convincing people that you know this this city conservation woodland project was needed? What was that like? To be honest, I don't think. Um, many people needed that much convincing. I think, well, I spoke to a lot of different people and not everyone had a a, a deep connection with the woods already. Um, Some of them did. But I think, yeah, there was a general sense that once you, yeah, like you say, the the Great North Wood really captures people's imagination. Um, Once you start talking about this vast ancient woodland that once sprawled across South London and that has lots of bits of it that you can still see people are instantly kind of interested in that. I think I suppose one thing to think about is like the need for actual conservation work in those woods though. Sometimes there's been a little bit of um, resistance in terms of the work that we've done um, because people feel like these are natural spaces that don't need any input. Um, But in fact there's lots of things that are, that are not natural about those spaces, like Chantelle mentioned cherry laurel. So that's a, an invasive plant that um, was introduced by the Victorians and it casts a very dense shade. It's evergreen, so that shade is all year round. And it also releases cyanide into the soil as an extra kind of measure to outcompete all the plants around it. So a combination of shade and cyanide means that you don't get anything else growing with cherry laurel. So in the absence of any management, what you could end up with is a sort of monoculture of cherry laurel um, once the kind of oak trees that come up through that die and aren't, um, aren't able in the presence of that cherry laurel to reproduce. So that's one area that our management has focused on. And I think over the course of the, of the Great North Wood project, the, the, the sheer amount of cherry laurel that we've removed has been quite staggering. Um, and I think that that alone will have a real big impact on the sort of ongoing 
future of the woods and the way that they'll develop and unfold and that ecological processes that we've been able to sort of unleash. Um, the other thing that's unnatural about the woods um, is the number of people that go to them. The, the sheer impact of, of visitors is, is huge. And we've all been, you know, valuing our green spaces, especially um, deeply, I guess, in, in, in the last year or so for obvious reasons. Um, but that's meant that the, 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 um, the impact on, on the woods has increased. Um, so we do a lot of work to kind of try and manage the way that people move through the woods, either by improving paths to kind of guide people um, away from ecologically sensitive areas. We've also done fencing and dead hedging to protect certain areas. Um, and that work can be, can be controversial because people, for, for good reason, want to be able to go anywhere they like in the woods. They want to ex be able to experience it fully. Um, and I, I, I can very much empathise with that. Um, but the kind of cumulative effect of lots of people going anywhere they like in the woods is that you do lose plant species that are sensitive to trampling um, and you do get a reduction in tree regeneration. Um, and ultimately you can end up with just big areas that are kind of compacted mud without anything growing there. Um, and we're seeing that unfortunately more and more in, in places in the Great Northwood. Um, so there has to be some balance there between the impact on visitors and the ecology. Um, and which isn't to say that the, the people visiting the woods is, is a negative thing in, its, in itself, because it's not, it's like, it's hugely positive that people have that, that space to be able to, to go to. And I think there's something really special about woodland, particularly in urban environments, because of the way that it kind of envelops you. Like you can, you can be in a woodland and not see any concrete in your whole field of vision, which is like not the case for, for parks or more open habitats where you can see houses and roads. And yeah, something about being completely held by an, like a natural environment is, I think that's what's, what woods can especially offer. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, because you do, having spent a lot of time in some of London's woodlands, you just it's so true you you can completely feel like you're not in London and it kind of makes you wonder about you know our kind of sense of space and you know where cities begin and end and stuff like that don't they but um but you really can get lost in them um I have I wanted to ask you um if you could both let me know your thoughts on this um it was something around natural versus managed landscapes and I think Sam you were talking about people's perceptions of you know um, these places shouldn't be managed they should be left alone and no Chantel you've been involved in some sort of rewilding um, re rewilding projects as well which you, you might want to talk about um, but I was just wondering if for, for both of you I mean what is the difference to you between a natural and managed landscape because you know the word natural is quite quite unhelpful sometimes isn't it and and obviously you can you can see people using that word in a, in a way that's completely inappropriate as well when they talk about things that are natural and in so, so many different parts of life. But yeah, what, what is the difference to you between a natural and a managed landscape? Uh, in the context of woodland, uh, I think it's really useful to think about the whole history of woodland in the UK, um, to go back to the end of the last ice age and to think about what vegetation emerged as temperatures warmed and, and trees were able to recolonise. Um, and I think there's the kind of idea of, of the wildwood 
the dense, dark wildwood which covered the whole of the UK has been challenged a bit by scientists like Franz Vera, who talk about there being a um, the presence of, of large herbivores which are now extinct, maintaining a, a complex kind of shifting mosaic of habitats of grassland and scrub and trees. Um, so in fact, the vision of, of the kind of primeval high woodland is maybe not the case. Um, and then going forward um, a few centuries in, in history to when those animals were extinct, but, but, pe but people started to kind of manage the landscape in a way which was perhaps similar to the way that the, in some ways, the way that those, those large extinct herbivores managed it. Um, so things like coppicing woodland or maintaining wood pasture or hay meadows um, and hedgerows. So then we come to, to sort of the current time in history where perhaps like um, for the first time, there's, there's areas of woodland that are left unmanaged. And I think that kind of, um, that story kind of allows a way into thinking about, about why management of woodlands is, is necessary and why managed woodlands are, are richer in wildlife than, than unmanaged ones. Because an unmanaged woodland is a sort of unnatural entity, I guess. So it's, complete, it's completely opposite to what most people think, mm. which is, I quite like that. <laughs> um, and also it's cultural, isn't it, really? That's quite interesting because you just described um, a natural landscape that in fact is cultural because it's completely moulded by, you know, the way that humans interact with it. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. I've just been reading this amazing book, which actually Chantal got me for a leaving present when I left London Wildlife Trust, called Braiding Sweetgrass by um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, who's an indigenous American woman and also a, a plant scientist. And she kind of weaves together these different strands of indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge. But, but she talks about kind of reapproaching our relationship with the natural world and, and basing it on on kind of gratitude and reciprocity and thinking about our place within the, the ecological the, the 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 ecosphere i guess that and the fact that we can con contribute to the ecosystem as well as extracting from it like our current model of thinking about the natural world is completely extractive or sort of some sort of sense of husbandry but but we but we're integrally a part of it and and we can contribute to it in positive ways as well as it providing everything we need i think is yeah yeah i, I read that book um a little while ago it's really yeah, really recommended really good she has some really interesting things to say doesn't she yeah. the word husbandry always makes me laugh it makes me think <laughs> of like it's what the husband does anyway um, yeah but lots of it's got patriarchal tones doesn't it that <laughs> yeah and we like to smash the patriarchy on unlocking landscapes so bear that in mind um so Chantel, what what's your um what's your perspective on a natural versus a managed landscape yeah i think um i think sam said some really interesting points there and i think you know this definition of what is natural and what isn't i think that's where you kind of like people get stuck on that but i mean it's almost like you want to say that the whole world well most of it is unnatural because man's had a hand on it and when i say man i mean human kind <laughs> we're smashing the patriarchy i want to make sure i'm getting it right um yeah come on Chantal. <laughs> so i think yeah human, humankind's already been on the world we've made our impact so i think it would be quite naive to think that we could just now like be like no hands off 
um you know we have to let it be natural because like sam said you know a lot of the stuff that we do in the in the great northwood is removing invasive species that got here because of us um so i think it's yeah quite um idealistic to think that you know we just kind of let the world do what it does and i mean we could um but i think because we've had already such an impact we've now got responsibility to undo that um impact um so yeah when i first heard about rewilding it's kind of like okay so i guess rewilding is just like hands off let nature do its thing which you know it can be but to begin with you have to do a lot of groundwork and it's a lot of you know i'm gonna um what's it replicate this natural process by bringing in these um types of animals and um, that's what really fascinates me how um, and how sam mentioned you know a lot of the stuff that we do about conservation is just kind of mimicking what would have already been done and um, so i find that really fascinating so even with rewilding there's management there to be honest you know you've got um the things that they do on the nepa state and um yeah i'm a i'm on the youth panel for heal rewilding which is turning one years old next week um so it's a new charity um that is kind of aiming to bring a fresh um outlook to rewilding and make it more accessible so we're kind of trying to move away from this idea that rewilding is a countryside thing um and we're trying to make it you know um into i guess something that can happen in cities as well you can rewild in cities and like sam said you know london is so rich with green spaces people wouldn't expect it um so one of the prerequisites for acquiring land that hill has is that um, any site that they acquire will be one hour maximum drive from a city which i think is amazing um and they're kind of like in this beginning stages which i think is the thing that fascinated me and made me want to get involved with hill was like this concept that what is rewilding and i want to see how it's done from the beginning and, and how um normal people do it because unless you've kind of inherited the land or you're really rich and you can just be like yeah i'm going to buy that land it's like how does it actually work um and it's seeing like the crowdfunding that's going on and how you get investment um so it's a really interesting process um and it's something i'm really looking forward to being a part of and they have this really amazing scheme called the um heal three by three which is um, generated by what three words so which is kind of like an orientation uh i guess scheme initiative so you can go anywhere um in the uk and the square that you're in it'll be like you can get an ambulance there by saying it's i'm at the square mary lamb pink <laughs> and that'll bring you to your destination um so yeah they have this really cool concept where you can sponsor this little um patch of land um and then hopefully if everyone sponsors bits of land you know you've got that um that funding for it and it's accessible because it's quite inexpensive i can't remember off the top of my head um but i think it's just stuff like that um that just breaks down barriers for people in terms of rewilding um but yeah i think natural versus managed is kind of um like blurred lines really and i think yeah it's really important to um think about where we sit and if we can help nature in some way do it and if it's better for us to hands off then that's what you should do i think it's really case by case thanks chantal just on rewilding but I was one. I was wondering what if you get, you know, when you are in the woods doing this stuff, I'm, I'm sure you get into conversations with visitors and volunteers as well. Are there any any of these conversations that are motivated by rewilding? Have you had any sort of conversations about that? 
Yeah, sometimes people, people talk about rewilding. Um, I think rewilding is such, I don't know, I guess people have people different definitions for it, but it can also just be such a broad term, can't it? Like, you know, a local authority might talk about rewilding a park and that means like sowing some wildflower meadows <laughs> and that's like, and that is a form of rewilding because it's like, to some extent, you know, you're, you're boosting biodiversity, you're to some extent re recreating natural processes, which is sort of what rewilding is, I guess. Yeah, and uh, you sometimes, I don't know if you've seen this, but on I've seen this on Twitter a couple of times from people who are quite, they're probably like well-known botanists and people who should know better. You get like a, a community group who've done a really good project on their on their estate or something like you know creating a wildflower meadow it might not be like a chalk grassland native mix or like a perfect mixture of natural flowers but they just get pilloried by by individual ecologists or um, botanists who are like how dare you do this these are not native species and it's like that is so it's just so backwards it's like those people they've got very little resources and they're trying to make a difference do something positive you know, you've got to be supportive of people, don't you? I mean, yeah, especially if yeah. that piece of land is definitely functioning better for biodiversity than it was before. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess for me, rewilding in its kind of like tourist sense is about reintroducing species that have been lost, species that like like at Net where they've re reintroduced like English longhorn cattle and Tamworth pigs and ponies that that kind of work as ecosystem architects and engineers to create a complex set of habitats. So you're kind of handing over the process of creating habitat, non-human agents. And, and, and uh, obviously that's not feasible in, in, lots of, in lots of situations like the Great Northwood, for example. We can't start introducing animals to these little pockets of woodland. But in other senses, um, in the city, I think rewilding could be possible. Like there could be sort of... Um, conservation grazing projects which which bear some relation to, to rewilding um the citizen zoo are, are, are a rewilding organization based in london that wants to reintroduce water bowls to the hogs mill river um so it's, it's not it's not just something that can happen in, in in like huge rural areas but there are limitations of what can be done in the city in terms of rewilding i don't know if that answers your question yeah, well, it's an unanswerable question, isn't it, rewilding? Because as you say, it's different people who've got so many different perspectives. Um, Chantal, did you have anything to add about rewilding there? Because I, I was wondering what you thought about um, what Sam said about it not being possible in, in London. Obviously, you can't like, you can't chuck a bison into onto Streatham Common or, um, or any more of them for that matter, even though they're probably quite happy in a place like Streatham Common, to be honest. As someone who studied animal behaviour and wildlife conservation, what's your perspective on rewilding in, in general in the UK, but also in, in a place like South London or the Great Northwood? Yeah, I think that's why um, rewilding is so um, almost like controversial, because I think people think that it's just one thing. Um, I think the beauty of it is that it is adaptable. So what you think is, what is classed as rewilding in the countryside looks different to how it would in an urban environment, say in South London. So I think it is very possible. Um, I think it's very possible to rewild in urban areas and in London, but um, it just looks different to what 
you know, it would look like in the countryside. So, for example, you know, how you mentioned, um, you know, in Sussex, they've um, introduced um, animal species that we just wouldn't be able to do in the Great Northwood, for example. But what we can do is um, plant wildflowers that were, would have been there um, before or wildflowers that are going to benefit the species that are there. So I just think, I think it is possible to do it. It just looks different. Um, and yeah, Sam mentioned the... Um, involved project i think it's called get involved project um so introducing voles um to the hospital river which is yeah i think i found out about that last year and i i only just remember that in southwest london i just it kind of blew my mind because i was like oh my god that's so cool voles in southwest west london and i remember um tony who's the ecologist at london wildlife trust we went to uh crane park island and we were trying to find voles and it was like looking at every blade of grass and being like, is that a 45 degree angle cut? <laughs> and just be like, I think this is a vol. Um, and we just did, we couldn't find any. So it was like, I was kind of like, you know, oh, maybe they're just not, they're not here. Um, so I think for that to be happening in Southwest London is amazing. And people should be shouting about it because it is possible to do reintroductions in London. It's not just about Scotland and, and um, places that seem really far out. So yeah, I just think it just looks different, you know, different in different places, basically. But I think it is very possible. I suppose one thing in the Great North Woods that you could we could maybe describe as rewilding that we've done is 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 about like creating the conditions for certain species to th to thrive. So mm. by doing bits of coppicing, by fencing areas, by removing cherry laurel, you create the conditions where you have light and you exclude trampling feet, where you get oak regeneration where you get like the expansion of patches of ancient wooden indicators like bluebells and wooden enemy and, and wild garlic. So you're kind of, yeah, we're not necessarily planting things, but we're kind of, we're adapting what's there to unleash those, those natural ecological processes. Yeah. I think like a bit of damage control, I find. Yeah. Well, what about this then? Um, let's say I've got some, some, um, some spare, pet beavers that are looking for a home and um, I'm wondering do you think it's possible that they could be reintroduced to London because they're in Warsaw um, the capital of Poland you know do you think it's possible and where could they be introduced in London uh, I think 100% they could be somewhere <laughs> in the tame in the Thames catchment anyway because um, I've, I've been looking, reading a bit into it and some of the sort of enclosed beaver reintroduction projects don't take up that much space um like I've, I've, i don't know a lot about the rivers around london yet i've just started Thames 21 and i'm learning so I, I wouldn't be able to like pinpoint a particular location but i think there's definitely scope for that and beavers are i've just bought a book about beavers so I, i'm super excited about beavers i think um in terms of rewilding they're one of the most sort of incredible species that we could that we could return um just the, the the amount of complexity that they produce, like creating these dams and these ponds um, and ponds that then dry up to create wet meadows um, and like semi-coppice woodland and, and the beavers are doing the coppicing and um, just an absolute explosion of biodiversity that they create where, they, um, where they're introduced, as well as reducing flood risk downstream and improving water quality. Um, they're just... A win-win-win. Um, although, of course, they're, they are controversial too because they have impacts on adjacent areas of land 
for example, farmland. But um, I think the, the benefits they bring far outweigh the, the negatives. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't know that much about um, rivers either, but I think I think we um, we don't utilize ours enough, and we kind of um, almost like downplay them. So I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about the Thames, but I mean, it's a huge area, and I think, like Sam said, if they don't take up that much space, and their um, area is quite small, then I think, yeah, it would definitely, I think, it'd be worth looking into it and thinking about it because, yeah, I think our rivers could do with a bit of a, a revamp. And it could be a really good opportunity for, um, yeah, seeing what beavers can do. It sounds like you're both moving on from woodlands and, and next up you're going to sort out London's rivers as well. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, well, maybe the the beat. Well, the, I mean, there is the Beverly Brook, isn't there, in, in West London? That's actually named after beavers. So that's probably a pretty nice tie-in to um, get them back. So, Sam, I look forward to um, the podcast next year when you're you know, live on air, reintroducing beavers somewhere. Fingers <laughs> um, crossed. Um, it'd be, I'd like to to talk about visitors to um, to the woodlands and their, the kind of some of the perspectives you get from people and some of the impacts. But, I mean, we were talking about beavers there and they, they cut down trees, don't they? And that's something that is, is very, very, um, very much frowned upon, particularly in the UK. Um, People get very, very annoyed about trees being cut down, but sometimes it obviously has to happen. Um, and it depends where the tree is and what type of tree it is. But what sort of attitudes have you experienced from from visitors and members of the public about doing tree management? I think it's been quite mixed, in my opinion. I think I mean, the first one of the first volunteering sessions I did as a trainee was like, you know, um, like cutting down cherry laurel and that sort of thing. And I was kind of like, oh, my gosh, this feels so unnatural, like, but you know, if you're as a volunteer and just being like, right, we've come here to do a bit of nature conservation, um, and then you're just chopping down trees, I think it's really um it's a bit of a shock. And you think like, oh, what am I doing? But I think when I realized when I was informed about why you're doing it, um, and and it's almost like for the greater good, that's how I see conservation. It's like a lot of things you have to think about the bigger picture, you have to think about the greater good. Because if you get bogged down about that single oak tree, and I know it's it's really controversial to say because some of the things, you know, some of the oaks are veterans, they're really old, they've got, you know, people are, are connected to them and I completely get that. But I think, yeah, a lot of people need to think about the bigger picture. So um, I wasn't here, I think Sam can obviously tell you a bit more about it, but in Biggenwood in a Croydon site, um, they did a coppicing project and it's been, I think, so far really successful. So I think that was in 2019 or 18, and um, they did it, and it's been really successful. And you know, there was about four oaks that were coppiced, and I think maybe two out of the four, I think it is, or three out of the four have um, have sprouted and regrown. So, and that area now has little oak seedlings, and there's really loads of potential because the canopy has just been opened up. So you know, I think people get really fixated on these one like species, and it's its character but when you think about the bigger picture it's really necessary um, to chop down a few trees every now and then and like there's those days where it's like it feels really great to do tree planting because half the time we're like <laughs> taking out cherry laws it's like a penance um but yeah definitely I think it would help people to think about the bigger picture and once people know are informed um I think people come around to the idea but yeah so 
I was wondering, you mentioned earlier um, about visitor numbers um, and the impact of visitors. I mean, fundamentally, it is really positive, isn't it, that people are accessing these nature reserves. I mean, the only, I mean, in my opinion, the only reason that a lot of these places are protected and invested in is because people care about them, because they mean something to the local community. How can visitor impact be made sustainable in the long term? I think partly it's about education. It's about sort of letting people know how sensitive a lot of these areas are, particularly to trampling, also to, to dogs off leads, at, at, particularly during the bird nesting season. Um, but I think it's also going to have to be some fencing. It's going to have to, some areas are going to have to be off limits because how like as much education as you do, I think there's going to be there's going to be people who who disregard that. You know, I almost don't blame them because if we have these very limited areas of of green space to visit, you kind of you want to experience it as fully as you can. But that being said, though, I think some areas do have to be protected. I think, yeah, just adding to it, I think um, people underestimate the uh, sensitivity of green spaces and woodlands. I think woodlands just look so kind of like almost indestructible. They just look like they've been there for ages. And, you know, just me walking around the woods is not going to have an impact. So I think people, yeah, don't think, like I said, about the bigger picture that you're one of thousands that are going through this woodland. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with Sam. It's definitely about education because in areas that we've taken down cherry laurel, it just looks really like barren and like what's been going on here. Um, I think the Great Northern Project has been really good at uh, well, putting up signage and things like that, which it just seems like a small thing. But, you know, people come along and ask us what we're doing all the time. So it's, it's yeah, people knowing what's going on and why. Um, and, you know, once you like know better, you do better. So, and even down to den making, you know, there's been times when we've had to go around like the Grinches of the Great North Woods and take down dens. I know um, that feeling. You yeah. know that feeling. Yeah. Um, and you feel really bad because it's like, you know, people have spent their time and it's a great way for families to interact with the wood, but then it's like, you know, you're disrupting natural processes. Um, so I think, yeah, once people know that, and it's all about moderation, like everything in life is. So, you know, one den's not going to kill all the, the beetles, but, you know, it's about if you look around and you see there's about 20 dens and don't go and add to that. Um, so, yeah education's key so i've got two final questions for you both um the first one is what advice do you have for people who are interested in your area of work and Chantelle, do you want to go first sure i i think it's, it's important to remember there's lots of different routes into it because i think there is a narrative that one size fits all and it's like you have to um get these sort of gccs and you have to do this volunteering and then you uh, you and you get a job sort of thing and you go to university and you get a job I think it's important for people to remember that you don't always have to go that route and that's what I figured out um, when I was going through my term on at sixth form it was like I'm never going to make it to uni I'm never going to be able to get into science um, and I remember a teacher telling me actually when I was literally like failing miserably at my studies in sixth form that maybe you should reconsider a, a, a route in science and think about something else um, and I was just like, no, you know, there's got to be some some other way. So I think it's really important for people not to get discouraged um, about your route into conservation or the environmental sector looking different to other people's. Um, and another beautiful thing about the environmental sector is that there are so many different professions within it. And one of the things that I loved learning about in university was the kind of like um, 
concept, I think it's called conservation biology. And it's like the concept of different um, professions all working together. So you can be an environmental lawyer, you can be, um, I don't know, something else, a, a nature writer, and all be working towards the same goal. Um, because the environment is so multifaceted that you need so many different people working it to, to reach the same goal. So yeah, definitely, I think just don't get bogged down by thinking that it has to look a certain way. Um, but I would say, um, just try to be as about it as you can, as like living and breathing it, like reading, watching documentaries. Because um, that's one of the things that I've been really inspired um, about getting into this industry and like working with people like Sam and Edwin um, and like hearing about people like yourself, Daniel, and who I told you, like I heard about you from like the first time I stepped into Sydney Hillwood. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, like, and how knowledgeable people are um, and how passionate people are and just like know like random stuff. Like, you know, I can go to like Sam and ask him what this fungi is, fungus is, and he like, knows it. It's just like stuff like that is incredible to me. So it's like, if there's something that you're interested in, read about it and, and like be about it so that, yeah, when an opportunity does arise, you're ready. Um, but also, yeah, um, just expressing an interest as well and not being afraid to talk to people in the industry because actually people are quite friendly when you speak to them. So if you have to send an email, if there's no vacancies, but just send an email just to say, like, I would really love to work under Wildlife Trust. What can I do to do that? Like, don't be afraid. Um, I think people are a lot more open about it now and people are wanting young people um, and even career switches. That's been a lot of what I've seen in this um, sector as well. So, um, for example, like we've had a volunteer who was a teacher um, and she was volunteering with us and then she kind of like started to get her qualifications um, that you don't necessarily need, but she just kind of like started to get those qualifications and now she works um, for the trust. So it's, yeah, you can switch your career as well which is inspirational thanks Chantal that's great Sam um yeah I think I'd sort of echo a lot of what Chantal said I mean it's it's not always the easiest sector to break into mm. it took me a long time and I'd spent lots of time working on bars as I said um but I think yeah don't get discouraged and it's worth it in the end and you'll find you'll you'll find, you'll get your break <laughs> Um, but also, I guess I'd, I'd want to turn it around to wildlife employers in the conservation sector and say, like, they need they need to be better at creating new new pathways into the sector that doesn't that isn't unpaid internships, basically. And that comes back to the project that Chantel was part of, the the Keeping It Wild project. And like we said, I think every every conservation organisation needs to have that kind of pathway into the sector. But I think there's also there's also um, room for hope because it feels like the sector's growing. Um, it feels like there's more money coming into it, if, and because there's a growing understanding about how yeah, there's just a growing understanding about the absolute importance of this stuff, and we need this stuff. If it, it, this is an existential crisis, like yeah. we need we need to be working and thinking about this stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and definitely more organisations that can need to make projects like keeping it wild and make them a core function of of the sector basically but I can definitely say that you two have got the will to make it happen I think that you know the, the conservation movement is in good hands with 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 you both there but I've got one gift to end this episode with say that that the unlocking landscapes um, fund was an unlimited amount of money um, which is kind of 
inconceivable. Um, but if you needed to invest in environmental or social projects, or you, if you wanted to invest in environmental or social social projects, what would you support and why, Chantal? Um, I would support definitely, like we were just saying, I would support a lot more schemes um, to get young people um, and people who are underrepresented in the environmental sector involved in the sector. Um, and whether that is through education, so I think there has to be a revamp of the education set, um, yeah, education, maybe curriculum, um, in terms of, um, yeah, making it known. And I don't, I don't think it's fair to be like scaring toddlers and being like, we're in an existential crisis, like the world is ending. <laughs> I don't think that's the route. Um, but I think for young people to grow up knowing that the environment is a priority. Um, and that it is super, super important, just as much as money management is, same as natural world management. Um, so I think education, I would definitely invest in that. Um, also into empowering communities. So I know this is kind of like, a, I feel like I'm definitely not going to spend all the money on this. But I think like food community growing should really be um, invested in so that the community knows that you can benefit from nature um, and that just kind of like ties in with health as well and I think becoming a more plant-based um, society um, so I think yeah it kind of like makes people into farmers in a way so I think that would be really amazing um, and also this kind of concept of giving people the tools to group together to almost like rewild so it's almost like people do like a community thing where they can like call in and buy a piece of land and then they get to choose what they do with that land, being guided towards a more sustainable natural world. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I would tell something into giving communities power over their natural spaces. I feel like I've gone really small thinking. I can't really think of anything really grand and huge, but <laughs> those are my small ideas. Sounds good to me. And remember that, you know, the the amount of money is unlimited. So maybe drop me an email if you've got any more ideas. <laughs> Will do. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chantel. And Sam, to finish. Um, I think I would want to acquire a big area of land. Um, I love the idea that Heal were talking about it being within reach of London, within easy reach of London. But I'd want to replicate something along the lines of NEP. I'd want to do a big rewilding project, introduce some animals, introduce some beavers on a stretch of river, but also have it potentially have um, an element of, of sort of restorative agriculture within it as well. Kind of thinking about, trying to think about a kind of microcosm of the entire UK in terms of like how land can be productive and create a, a really vibrant ecosystem alongside it. And I'd want that, I want that to be a sort of, a hub for education so it could be it could be like a sort of field studies center where kids from london could come and do their a levels and and you know take part in in science projects there and it could be a, a way a, a place to trial new restorative agriculture techniques so kind of like a combination of a really a really kind of um yeah combined way of looking at the land that, in, that includes rewilding and thinking about the land as productive because we need it to support to, to support us as well. I just adding to that, I think that's a really, really good point about like um, like a sort of FFC 
um, centre. So I remember going in sixth form to, I think the one, I think it's Box Hill, maybe. I can't remember where it is. Um, and I remember going there for sixth form, like a residential trip. And it was just amazing. And I think, yeah, getting schools out into places like that where they can just, yeah, get, get connected with nature. And I think another thing that I've loved learning about with this project is forest schools and the concept of that. Um, and how like bringing learning more outdoors because I remember in summer where it's like every now and then you'd be able to like go outside and learn or just like have a maths lesson outside and I was like this is incredible because I think those little connections that you kind of spark with people from a young age really uh, matter and it's it's about kind of like being um, proactive in encouraging people to connect with nature at any level so it's not just about knowing every tree and knowing every like bit of latin for it sometimes it's just that if you move your um work at home outside you know you're gonna be able to concentrate better it's gonna be good for your health i think those little connections should be sparked from young thanks Chantel, and thanks sam yeah really really important points there totally agree education it's quite interesting actually because when i asked other people on the podcast what they would invest in education particularly for children has been another key key thing as well but we haven't had restorative agriculture until now so thank you sam so that brings us to the end of the podcast so thank you Chantel. thank you sam so much for joining me for unlocking landscapes i hope you've had a great time we have sorry did we, we paused too long there <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, no yeah, it's, it's, great time. Been, it's been a great conversation thank you daniel thank you so much for having us daniel thanks both have a great day take care and you bye bye